While we've sung about God's word, let's listen to it now. Matthew 8, verses 23 to 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? The Lord Jesus has many classrooms, synagogues and seasides, mountainside, roadside, towns, private homes. The Lord Jesus preaches from a boat. He teaches from the cross. He speaks beside a fig tree and in temple courts. Jesus' school of faith has many classrooms. And you and I, friends, this evening, you and I have heard his voice, haven't we, in many different classrooms over the years. Some of us have heard it on Presbyterian pews. Some of us have heard his voice in FIEC comfy chairs. Some of us in Methodist chapel. Some of us in Anglican liturgy and lectionary Many of us, of course, in great white Keswick tents over the years. The Lord Jesus has schooled us in the faith in so many different ways. He speaks. We listen to his voice. We love to listen to him. And yet, in a room this big, many of us this evening know that Jesus does not just use classrooms. He also uses crucibles. And the crucible is different, isn't it? In the classroom, you learn in comfort, you you absorb information and theology, but in the crucible, what you have learned is verified. A crucible is an ordeal, a trial, a, a cauldron. It's where what you say you believe is tested and where the reality of how much you have actually taken in and put into your head in the school of faith has actually made it down deep into your bones, into your heart. The furnace exposes our faith, doesn't it? It, it burns away the dross, shows what's really there. In the classroom, we put up our hand. We say, yes, yes, me, Lord. Pick me, Lord. I know the answer. And in the crucible, our gracious master says, really? I'll follow you, Lord, to death, Peter says, in the classroom of faith. Really? Round a fire in the dead of night, in the crucible of faith, I do not know him. In our passage this evening, five short, terse verses, the temperature is turned right up, and we get to watch some men in the crucible of their faith. But we're not just looking at a window, through a window at them, are we? We're actually looking this evening in a mirror with them. I'm here in these verses, 
and I suspect you are too, infertility, mental health, financial loss or loneliness, the, the, the tragic end of a precious relationship or the ongoing trauma of an unhealthy relationship, that diagnosis that you've just received that you, you never saw coming in a million years. Now, I'm guessing none of us this evening are afraid of a great storm on a sea, verse 24, but you are more worried than you ever thought you would be about your kids, their choices and their futures. Truth is, we are afraid all the time, aren't we? All the time. It's just that we don't call it fear today. We call it instead anxiety. We call it stress. We are restless, anxious people in a restless, anxious world, right? The the cost of living, the threat of war, the daunting challenge, whatever it is in front of you this evening, whether it's out there or whether it's simply in here that you've brought with you this evening, some things loom so large we feel we will come undone. I want to show us from this amazing story this evening why we can trust the Lord Jesus Christ. I think there are two reasons here, two beautiful reasons that we're going to look at together because we we need help, don't we, to trust him. I need help, you need help. And so I have a simple aim here as we look at this. My aim is to help you hear his strong but loving voice ask you, verse 26, Why are you afraid? I want you to hear that question to you this evening. You see, Matthew chapter 8 is all about discipleship, isn't it? It's all about following. Put your eyes on chapter 8, verse 1, if you can. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Look at chapter 8, verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, following him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And in a crowd like that, that is pressing on Jesus, people put their hand up all the time. Verse 19, it's what Liv was showing us last night. A scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, really? This man is too quick to make Jesus a promise. Verse 21, notice Notice it is a disciple who says to him, a disciple says to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Really? This man is too slow to put Jesus first. And so now this evening we come to verse 23. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Really? His disciples Turns out, in fact, they are too too scared to leave Jesus in charge. Too quick to make Jesus a promise, too slow to put Jesus first. Friends, here are a group of men like you and me this evening who are too scared to leave Jesus in charge. That's the story in a nutshell here, isn't it? It, It's what, this story is all about what happens when disciples are too scared to leave Jesus in charge. 
And Matthew actually makes a very subtle but a deliberate point here. Just look at it again with me. In in verse 23, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. In verse 23, they are doing what disciples are meant to do. Jesus leads and I follow behind. But look at the end of it, verse 27. What are they called there? By the end, they are just the men. The men marveled. Many of you, I'm sure, you know that old famous story, uh, the famous story of the written exam for police officers. Uh, The the question was there on the exam paper for police officers. Uh, The wording of the question was this, you arrive at a house fire, and as you are cordoning off the area, you witness a burglary taking place two doors down from the house fire. As you turn your attention towards the house fire, then you see a car theft underway at one end of the street. You see a drugs deal going down at the other end of the street. As you're looking at both of them, somebody comes up to you to report a missing person, and to top it all off, you see a cat stuck up a tree. Question, what do you do? The best answer, I would take off my uniform and blend in with the crowd. Some crucibles almost undisciple us, don't they? They remove our Christian dress, our Christian appearance. They they drown our Christian distinctives. They make us the same as everybody else. They, They take us from being right up close with Jesus, listening to him, loving him, and they seem to take us all the way back, back to the edge of the crowd, now just looking at Jesus. He was so close to me, so real, but now this thing has exploded on my lap in front of me. Maybe my discipleship was just a garment I was wearing. It's evaporated in the heat of the trial. So so how can we trust the Lord Jesus? Why should we trust him? Dane Ortland said, I saw this on Twitter a few weeks ago, he said, if you, if you want to be a solid, weighty, radiant old man or woman, let the pain in your life force you to believe your own theology. So come into this some more with me to see two really simple things. Here's why we can trust Jesus. Number one, trust him for the surprising comfort of his exemplary calm. Trust the Lord Jesus for the surprising comfort of his exemplary calm. Or if you want a simple version, friends, trust him for what he knows. Trust Jesus for what he knows. Look at it again with me. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. It's a great sight to see, isn't it? If ever you've seen people who are in charge of a vessel, seasoned pros, remaining calm in a crisis. Do you remember Captain Sully, the pilot of US Airways 1549? Several years ago, he landed his plane full of passengers in New York on the Hudson River after a bird strike took out both of his engines. Remember what he did? It's a completely true story. He, he, he landed the plane on the water evacuated the passengers off the plane, and as the plane was filling with water, he walked the aisle to make sure he was the last one off the craft. Crash landed, safe evacuation, everybody remains calm. 
It's an amazing thing. See, Roy Keane, the football pundit, of course, if he was watching it, he would just say that that's his job, isn't it? It's what he's meant to do. But of course, so many people do not do what they're meant to do. If the pilot comes on the intercom and says, we're all going to die, and the crew and the fishermen of the boat that you are on all think you're going to die, then you're going to be sweating, aren't you? Imagine how terrified you'd be if you'd been there in verse 24. Verse 24 is not Derwent water holiday day trippers. These are seasoned fishermen. They know the size of this lake and the unexpected storms that could roar in over the hills and take a boat down in a matter of minutes. The boat is being swamped and soon it will be at the bottom of the lake. The men who are meant to be in charge are at the end of themselves. They panic. Save us, Lord, we're about to die. In the original, it is three short, sharp words. Save, Lord, dying. It's all you do in a crisis, isn't it? You don't craft carefully molded sentences. You shout, help. And what is Jesus doing? Sleeping. He was asleep. A storm rose up. And Jesus is lying down. The the boat is being swamped by waves and Jesus is engulfed in sleep. Oh, friends, there is comfort in a sleeping Savior. Or there should be. I want you to feel the comfort of his exemplary calm. As Jesus sleeps, so he teaches the disciples. In their crucible, he is displaying something to them and to us. What is it? His silence in the storm is preaching to us. Can you hear it? I don't know if you know, but some older commentators really struggled with this. How could the Lord Jesus, the divine man, possibly sleep through a storm? Some even argued that Jesus is just pretending to be asleep here to test the disciples. It's a a kind of grotesque image. Imagine Jesus lying there just occasionally opening an eye just to check if they've spotted yet. Has anybody really got this right and realized that they have God in the boat with them? No, friends. I I want to say it is the exact opposite, in fact. that The Lord is sleeping here not because he is a pretend human, but because he is the proper human. He's not a pretend man. He is the true man, the real man, the ultimate man. He is the man who does what every human being should have done from the dawn of time right down to today. Every single person should have known there is a good God in heaven, a loving Father who holds us by his hand. And every person who knows that truly should do what Jesus does here, lay their head down and sleep, come what may. He is exemplary. His silence is preaching a thousand sermons, or better we might say his sleeping silence is singing several psalms to us. See, if you don't believe me, do you remember King David, Psalm 3? Oh Lord, How many are my foes, many are rising up against me, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. I lay down and slept. 
I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people. Many thousands of people. Have you ever tried to sleep in the midst of a conflict? So very hard, isn't it? You, you, you drop off and then you wake up and he said, she said, and in the wee small hours you're rehearsing your speech on your soapbox if you ever get the chance. These people want David's blood and he sleeps. He sleeps for the Lord sustained me. Brothers and sisters, when you woke this morning, do you know why you woke? Not because of the light or the heat or the sheep in the field or the alarm. You woke because the God of heaven saw fit to keep your heart beating in your body through the night when you knew nothing about it and because in his wisdom and goodness he said to you, okay, another day. It's yours. That's why we woke. Did you think that this morning? Do you believe that? The Lord Jesus believed that. In his sleep, Jesus is preaching Psalm 121 to his disciples. I lift up my eyes to the hills, the the hills that the winds have just swept over down onto the lake. From where does my help come from? From the Lord who made heaven and earth, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Oh, do you see it? You can trust Jesus for what he knows. He knows that while he sleeps, God does not sleep, cannot sleep. I want friends to recommend a book to you this evening. I was going to say, I put in my notes here that if you're only going to buy one book this week, you should buy this book. That's a terrible thing after Jonathan's been on the stages. And I can't say only buy this book. Whatever other books you buy, you must add this book to the list. And this is a wonderful new book that's just come out by Nick Tucker. And the book is called 12 Things God Can't Do and How They Can Help You Sleep at Night. Here are the 12 things that God cannot do, that Nick takes us through. God cannot learn. God cannot be surprised. God cannot change his mind. God can't be seen. God can't bear to look. God can't change. God can't be lonely. God can't suffer. God can't die. God can't be tempted. God can't lie. And God cannot disown himself. Friends, you you can trust Jesus because he was exemplary in trusting the cannots of God. He cannot fail you, cannot let you go. He cannot drop off and miss what is happening in your life. He will not, he cannot let you go. Frederick Dale Brunner, commentator on Matthew, he said this, one can learn from this story, our passage this evening, one can learn from this story if one follows its logic, that in danger, disciples should sometimes simply walk into their room, lie down, and go to sleep. At times, perhaps, sleep with confidence pleases Jesus more than prayer with fear. Have you got room for that? I mean, I mean, it is a prayer, isn't it? Verse 25, they are crying out to him. But which is better, panic praying or confident catnapping? Do you have a theology of sleep? 
you should have a theology of sleep. Do you know why you sleep? Because you are a creature, not the creator. In just a few hours from now, friends, you will put your head on a pillow or a hard, lumpy mat in a field somewhere if you're camping. And as you close your eyes and drift off to to sleep, God will say, I'll take it from here. Again, I've got this. Off you go. Sleep. Do you know, friends, that every single sleep is a mini death? Your bed tonight is a mini coffin, a preparatory coffin, your duvet, your cushion. Can you hear what they're saying to you? That They're preaching Ecclesiastes chapter one to you. One day you will do this for much more than one night only. You will die. And friends, when you die, the world is going to go on just fine without you. You are not essential to the smooth running of the universe. That's what sleep teaches us. It might be this evening that at the root of your fears and the source of your anxiety is that you do not believe God runs the universe. You think you run the universe. It's the irony of worry, actually, isn't it, when you think about it? We're not not actually worrying because we're so small in a big, bad world. No, we're anxious and worried because we have made ourselves so big and God so small. Our fear and our panic and anxiety is not because we've rightly assessed the situation in front of us, but because we have inflated ourselves in the situation we're in. For every excessive fear, is it not true there is an inordinate turning in on ourselves and a turning away from Christ and making ourselves our own Savior? Oh, friends, there is a way to be properly human in this world, to to be like King David and like the Lord Jesus, a true human, and it is to rest luxuriously in the powerful goodness of God. You know, I, I wish you could have met my brother's friend, Sean. My brother Alistair is a, is a big guy, but Alistair had nothing on Sean and for a while, Sean was my brother Alistair's best, friend's best friend. Let me tell you, you did not mess with Sean. You did not make eye contact with Sean. You gave Sean whatever Sean wanted, whenever Sean wanted it. And the reason you did that is because Sean was a Neapolitan Mastiff dog. <laughs> and now, now don't, don't get your phone out and Google this. You, no one will hear another word I say if you're Googling great Mastiffs. You can forget your... Uh, YouTube cat videos, you'll be sending Mastiff videos for the rest of your life. A a, a Neapolitan Mastiff, if you imagine a Great Dane, a Doberman Pinscher, an Irish Wolfhound, a Shetland Pony, all mashed together, and then jacked up on steroids, (laughs) then you have Sean. And I kid you not, friends, when I was with my brother uh, and Sean was there. As we walked down the city center, grown men put their backs against the wall. When Sean walked down the road, they, they literally put their arms around their wives and children to protect them. And we walked with our heads held high down, down the city center street. I remember one night sleeping on my brother's couch while, while Sean lay a few feet from me in the vestibule of the house. And between me and the darkness of the outside world, 
Every now and then through the night, I would just hear the most wonderful, deep-throated growl as somebody outside innocently passed just too close to the front door. And I remember just lying there holding my duvet saying, please break in, please break in. Give it, give it, a, give it a go. While we slept, Sean did not sleep. He was a shield. Do you know you have that friend this evening? Between you and the darkness, there is a shield. Between you and that terror that has unexpectedly entered your life so disturbingly, there is a God who neither sleeps nor slumbers. And so he is stronger than you. Oh, you can trust the Lord Jesus for the surprising comfort of his exemplary calm. One more thing to see, point number two. Trust the Lord Jesus for the tender rebuke of his marvelous person. I want you to trust him for the tender rebuke of his marvelous person. Or again, if you want a simple version, trust him for who he is. The astonishing thing to me here is is how tender Jesus is with these hand-picked by him, yes, but also also hands-in-the-air disciples who, who think they get it, but they don't get it yet. I mean, they don't trust him, do they, for who he is? And he said to them, why are you afraid? They go to him, wake him, saying, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Now, now look, make no mistake, Matthew is not saying these men aren't believers anymore. They're not, they're not outsiders to Jesus. They're just, well, they're just like me. They want to be disciples, yes, definitely, but they also don't want to leave Jesus completely in charge. Are they like you? Do you notice what Jesus calls in verse 26? And he said to them, Oh, you of little faith. Now, now literally, the text does not have the words, oh, you of. And the two words, little faith, is actually one word, and it's like a plural noun. It's little faiths. Why are you afraid, little faiths, he calls them. He renames them. It's amazing, isn't it? In the midst of a crisis, these men think they're dying. Jesus gives his followers a nickname. He got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Actually, his little faith followed him. Is that you? It's certainly me so much of the time. All of those things I listed at the start, the the crises, the problems, the difficulties that enter our lives. For me right now in my life, it is a building project. Friends, I have walked around this campus this week envying the Keswick Pencil Factory like I cannot tell you. Do not do a church building project. Old building, big problems, big money, big delay. And Matthew seems to know my name as he writes this story up for us, doesn't he? As as I read this little faith. He, He seems to know where I live. I live on Little Faith Street. Here's what Frederick Dale Brunner says, little faith disciples believe that the laws of nature are impervious to Jesus' lordship. 
Isn't that true of us? So often we believe that the laws of nature are impervious to his lordship. They are too afraid to leave Jesus in charge of this world. And yet, and yet, oh friends, isn't this, isn't this beautiful? Trust him for the tender rebuke of his marvelous person. Who gets the rebuke here in our passage? The little faiths? Then he rose, verse 26, then he rose and rebuked the little faiths. No, no, it's, it's the storm he rebukes. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. Oh, you can trust the Lord because his rebuke here is tender. And make no mistake, there is implied rebuke, isn't there? Two little faiths. It's not exactly a, um, it's not a medal-winning title to be given, is it? He, he's, not, he's not commending tiny faith. But his shout, his rebuke is not to you. It is to what threatens you. John Calvin says beautifully, there is no blame for disciples for being merely afraid. Ordinary fear is not opposed to faith. Friends, it's okay to be scared on a drowning boat or to be scared about prodigal children or anxious about church conflict. No, it is excessive fear that Jesus is criticizing here. Listen to Brunner again. Little faith is the despair of those who have at least dared something with God. They have at least dared to get into the boat with God by getting on his mission at all in the first place. And it is precisely those of little faith who get to experience the Lord's power. Isn't that beautiful? If you are brother, little faith this evening, sister, little faith, then at least you are in the boat with Jesus. You are right where he wants you to be. He is not far away from you. He is with his own in your boat, in your crucible. Will you trust him? Even when your faith is excessively fearful, Matthew says to us, Jesus hears your cry. And he does not say as he might easily have said, look, come back later when your faith is stronger. No, he takes us where we are and he sets to work immediately. Can you see, David, little faith, who he is? Friend, will you trust him this evening because in his tenderness, there is a rebuke. Make no mistake, there is a rebuke. There is a wonderful rebuke here for all that is wrong with the world, for all that is broken, all that is evil. You know, I'm sure, that in the Bible, the sea is a picture of tumultuous evil. The sea is not just the sea. It is, it is freighted with dark and deep and devilish meaning. Rebellion against God. The sea is a deep and dark place. It's where chaos reigns. It's where Leviathan the monster lives. And here Jesus says to it, be quiet. But one day, one day, what he will say to the sea. Do you remember what John sees in the book of Revelation? So beautiful, isn't it? The end of the Bible. John sees a throne and he sees a world in which there is no longer any sea. 
Oh, friends, this stilling of the storm this evening, it's just a glimpse, isn't it, of what is coming? Here Jesus says, be quiet. One day he will say, be gone. Be gone forever. You're finished, you're done with. Be quiet is a faint echo from the future into our world that echoes the words, be gone. It comes to us as the words, be quiet. Friends, you know what the whole point of this crucible is? It's to teach us that creation recognizes its creator. Creation, put creation in the presence of its creator. It knows who's the boss and who's in charge. Oh, the man in the boat, he's not just a man, is he? If you look at verse 27, the the ESV translation is It's actually quite unfortunate. The men marveled saying, what sort of man is this? But actually the word for man is not there in the text. It's something much more like, what sort is this one? What kind is this one? Something like, who in the world is this? Who is this? That even wind and seas obey him. We know the answer to the question, don't we? We we know we can take it in the calmness of a Keswick tent. We can take in what they could not take in in the crisis of a a storm, the aftershock of nearly losing their lives. We, We can take it in. We read those words together wonderfully, Psalm 107. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and the Lord delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Oh, the Lord Jesus you trust is the Lord of heaven and earth. You are trusting your maker, the one who holds your sorrow, your fear, your anxiety. It is real, yes, it is awful to carry, yes, but one day all that is broken and all that is evil and wrong and all that is sleep destroying, one day it will all answer to him. And he will speak and say, be gone, and all will be well. You know, you know the amazing thing about Sean, my brother's dog? I remember once uh, being uh, in a pub in Newcastle with him. And my brother got up, left where we were sitting in the pub, crowded pub, went to the bathroom. And when Alistair went to the bathroom, Sean sat bolt upright and stared at the door. Let me say it again, you did not speak to Sean, you did not touch Sean. When Sean was staring at the bathroom door, you did not even look at Sean. The entire pub went quiet as grown men clutched their drinks and stared straight ahead. (laughs) But when Alistair came out, he walked towards Sean and simply said, down boy, lie down. When my brother spoke, Sean obeyed. The creature knew its master. Brothers and sisters, this very evening, the God-man sits on heaven's throne. One day at his word, all will be well. He knows the beginning from the end, and with a word, evil will be gone, and all that has risen up against him, he will make it lie down. Oh, dear friends, you can trust Jesus for his marvelous person. 
In our church family in Aberdeen, we, we've started over the last few years on the first Sunday of the year saying the question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 1. Many of you know it. What is my only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. But there's more in the Catechism. Do you know Lord's Day 10? Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 10, question 27. And with this, we finish. What do you understand by the providence of God? Answer. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade and rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance but from his fatherly hand. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? It means we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand, so completely in his hand, that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. You know you know who Jesus is when you leave him in charge. Leave him in charge. So may God help us. Amen. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, this evening from this lectern, I am not able to name all the fears in this room, but you see them and know them all. Every hair on our heads is numbered. Every sorrow is known to you. The very tears we have cried are collected in your bottle. And so in all our weakness, so we thank you for this question. Why are you afraid? We lay ourselves at your feet tremble before you, but tremble with joy and thankfulness and renewed trust and hope and faith in you. And so we praise and worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.